Hello and welcome to another episode of the Haskin Cast Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Haskin, and buckle up, guys, because today we are digging into one of the great horror movie soundtracks, Wendy Carlos's score for Stanley Kubrick's adaptation of Stephen King's novel, The Shining. And this is uh, Shelley Duvall, Jack Nicholson, Scatman Crothers, uh, a crazy, crazy movie. Lots of mystery surrounds this movie. A lot of theories and videos and even a whole uh, documentary of the theory came out on it. Tons and tons of stuff. Uh, very controversial movie. Uh, you know, I mean, pretty much everything that Kubrick did uh, was not without some level of controversy. But this one seems to just be shrouded in so many different theories and possibilities. And you know, so many of them seem plausible and then ridiculous at the same time that you really don't know what to think. And since uh, Kubrick's gone, we'll probably never know. Who knows? Maybe he's got it all in an archive somewhere. And one day his daughter will release that. I have no idea. But I do know that this is a fantastic horror film, had a really big impact on me. Um, I think it was the first year we had cable. And this was on like HBO or the movie channel or something. And, um, it was in, it was on our Christmas vacation from school. Cause I would have been really young. I was born in 72. So 80, I was only eight. I think we had cable in like 82, maybe 81 or 82. And so, um, yeah, I was pretty young. So this was a very impressionable time for me to watch horror movies. Halloween would be another one that I remember seeing on regular television. So certain things were edited out. And it was a little bit easier to watch. I remember seeing a documentary on films starring Donald Pleasance called Terror in the Isles. And they showed a couple of clips of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which I thought was like a true story. I didn't realize it was just very loosely based on a true story. Um, so that really like scared me that somebody could actually do that. Of course, somebody could actually do that. Certain parts of it are a little far-fetched. But I mean, it's not out of the realm of possibility for something like that to happen. But The Shining, I mean, very, being very supernatural. And of course, it, at a young age, I hadn't really had any paranormal experiences or anything like that. So to me, it was just a very, very cool ghost story. But it was done in a way that was very creepy. And one of the things that really brought that out, uh, a huge component of the movie, I think equal to the actors, is the score. Um, this is an absolutely amazing score done by Wendy Carlos, of course, known for A Clockwork Orange. And uh, she even created an instrument for this called the circular controller or the circon that actually never made it into the film. So she created an instrument to use in the film and then it never made it into the film. It made it into uh, one piece that was in a documentary. And I have been trying to find that, but have been unsuccessful. I don't know which one it was. Uh, I remember she mentioned it briefly on the DVD version I have of The Shining, which has a, a, a bit of an interview with her about the music where She's in her studio with some very, very old looking computers with giant monitors. And when I say giant monitors, I don't mean large screen monitors. I mean like, you know, the regular size old school monitor, but the monitor itself was huge. Like the screen was small, but the monitor was huge back then. Um, they were they were just a pain. Um, really, really great soundtrack, though. And I have to say, like, I, I know that when I did my review of Steve Jablonski's soundtrack for... Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the beginning, which was um, a reboot. Uh, I really, that's definitely one of my favorite horror soundtracks. This one is also one of my favorite horror soundtracks. I will not say that the soundtrack Richard Bellis did for Stephen King's It is a horror soundtrack because I don't consider 
that miniseries to be a horror miniseries. It's really more of a drama thriller sort of thing. Um, there were some, you know, kind of shock scenes in it or whatever, but I, I've never really considered it a horror movie. I thought it was very tame compared to the book. The book was a horror novel. I, I really do feel that way. I have not seen the reboot of the It series. Um, just because the original is so close to my heart, there's a, a piece in there that's one of the two pieces that made me want to be a film composer in the first place that Richard wrote. And, uh, you know, so, so for me, you're not going to be able to top that. So there's really no point in me watching it because no matter what, it's going to fall short of my expectations. So, uh, I don't, I don't need to spend four hours or six hours or whatever it is being disappointed. Um, yeah, no need for that. So, uh, this one though, so like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, uh, it was another huge horror one, but this is, is right up there. So these are like a couple of my favorite horror soundtracks. There are other soundtracks that have great music in them that I absolutely love, like Jaws. I love the main theme to Jaws. I think it's excellent. Um, Close Encounters has some really good music in it, even though that's not really a horror movie. It's got some, you know, some ominous pieces in it. Uh, Halloween, obviously, uh, is another one that has some some great horror music to it. But I just, it, it, to be able to say, listening to the soundtrack on the whole, you know, from beginning to end as a standalone soundtrack, for me to be able to say I enjoy all the pieces in it, like Jaws has a lot of pieces where they're chasing the shark that are just kind of really light and happy chase music. It's not intense. It's not, um, I mean, it has a little bit of a purpose to it, but some of it's just like, there, there's no intensity to it. It just is just like, hey, we're chasing something. Got to catch it. Got to get that rabbit. But it's not like, oh my God, we've got to get the shark. He's after us. We've got to get him before he gets me. Like, it's nothing like that at all. It's it's really just kind of playful. So, um, I, you know, for from a beginning to end standpoint, I can't say that all the pieces in those soundtracks uh, always do it for me. But certainly Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the beginning, certainly um, this one for sure for The Shining. So The Shining came out in 1980. And, uh, man, the, the controversy goes from everything to, you know, all the, the ribbing that poor Shelley Duvall took for being such a bad actress. And no one knew that she was just completely broken, uh, by Kubrick's directing and there's video footage of it. You know, that's not rumor. There's footage of it, you know, of just how he treated her. And, you know, it, it's a shame because I've been on productions, I've worked on productions that, you know, people bash them and that's fine. You know, if you're just looking at the production and you're saying the end result, I don't like, or here's what I don't like about her. Here's what you could have done better or whatever. That's fine. Everybody's got their opinion. What I hate is that people just put their opinions out there without having any idea what goes on behind the scenes, why things were created. Certain things have to be released because of contracts, even if they're crap, you know, um, it's there's just so much more that goes on than here's the surface of the movie, you know, the final product that you're seeing. And I see people like this should have never been released. Well, you know, there are certain things that require it to be released. Maybe it was a contest entry that part of the prize was they had a contract that the film get put into like distribution or whatever that has to get released. That's part of that agreement. So you may not like the film and that's fine but you have no idea why that film was released. And that is certainly a, a perfectly plausible scenario where that could happen, good or bad, whether they're happy with the film or not, that's part of the agreement. Now, they might be able to say, as the artist or the owner of the art, to be able to say, um, we're not going to pursue that part of the prize because we don't feel 
the final product is good enough to be out there. We don't want our names on it. We're not happy with this contest. Don't release it. And they might have the ability to say that. I don't know. That's probably going to be depending on the contest and all that. Because the the people that put the contest on are also promoting it. And you would think that they wouldn't necessarily want a subpar product out there. But there's so many legalities and so many things that go on. And every contest is different. And so there's there's so much more involved to it. So I really hate when people are just like, this was stupid. This was looking low budget. The special effects sucks, this or that. You have no idea what was behind it. If you don't like it, fine. You don't like it. Move on. Tell your friends, you know, I didn't really care for it. I It, it just wasn't my thing. It seemed kind of low budget for what I'm used to seeing. You know, whatever you want to say is fine. But just, you know, don't act like you were part of the production and all of your ideas got snubbed and now you're bitter. Because that's what so many people sound like when they bash films. And it really gets to be just so annoying because so many people work so hard, put so much effort into these projects, and they just don't always end up well. It, it happens. You know, it, even on some major productions, it happens. Um, it's just part of life. So if you don't like it, just say, you know what, it wasn't for me. I didn't care for it and move on, you know, be an adult. So all this bashing against Shelley Duvall, all the controversy, like, um, of course, Kubrick had done 2001 A Space Odyssey before this. And so, of course, there were all those rumors that he actually did the moon landing and that 2001 A Space Odyssey was kind of the warm up to see if he could pull it off. Or because he did that, they tapped him to uh, to execute the moon landing video footage. Then there's the rumors that the moon landing did happen, but they didn't get any footage. So they had to recreate it uh, just for public consumption so that the public would have something. So it wasn't that Kubrick faked the moon landing. They were just compensating for the fact that they had no footage. So that it was a recreation. I mean, there is so many things out there about Kubrick. So then you go to uh, the carpet that Danny's sitting on where he's playing with his cars and he's wearing a like a, a NASA sweater, I think. And there was something about the the pattern in the carpet that had some throwback to something about the the moon or, or NASA or whatever it was. I mean, so many things. You have no idea what to believe. One thing that I did find interesting, though, and, and I if I can find the documentary again, I'll put it in the show notes but because there's so many of them out there. But they were talking about scenes where certain pieces of furniture are there, and then when they flip back to them, they're gone. And the theory is that the um, the family, up to the point they move into the hotel, that's all real. And once Jack starts the, the first scene with Jack typing his novel is actually now they're inside you're hearing the story inside the novel. So the hotel itself isn't necessarily really haunted. There might not really be anything going on. We're actually in Jack's mind throughout the rest of the movie until the end. And I thought, you know, that kind of makes sense because they talk about certain things being in like the writing room like there's a chair on uh, along the wall behind him and then it's not there after he goes inside the novel. And like, that's how you can tell when they're in it and when they're not Um, really. I mean, and who knows? I mean, all that stuff might just be like, Hey, we noticed that somebody forgot to put the chair back and it just happened to coincide with this. So, Oh, here's a fan theory. Now we're in the novel. Uh, Who knows? Because we're never going to get answers on that, or we're not likely to get answers on it, but it just, it just adds to the mystery of the film. It makes it a lot of fun because you can watch the film and just enjoy it for the great piece of art that it is the fantastic acting. And I'm sorry, I think Shelley Duvall did a great job in the final product. However, it was put together, whether it was her acting or the editing or what. Um, Jack Nicholson bringing a a pretty amazing performance. Danny Lloyd as the little boy, just, man, just so much intensity with him. And, and, 
you know, him playing, um, being like completely incoherent and disconnected at points, like just so good. And he was just a little kid, you know, Scatman Carruthers was great. Um, my favorite part of this movie though, is that Barry Denon, I love Barry Denon. He's great. I knew him as Pontius Pilate from the original soundtrack to the Jesus Christ Superstar film. Um, man, he was so good in that. But he plays kind of an assistant to Halloran, who's the manager of the hotel that interviews Jack. And then they kind of, you know, show him around the hotel. But he pretty much just like stands there really awkwardly. He's sitting in the, you know, in, in the time when they're talking to Jack in the office just kind of sitting there awkwardly. There's like no reason for him to really be in the room. Then when um, they're, they're out and the Torrances arrive at the hotel and they say, uh, you know, they, they go meet up with Jack and Halloran's in front of Jack talking to him. And for some reason, Barry Denon goes and stands behind Jack's chair very awkwardly. So I, I don't know why that is. There's really no reason for him to go stand over there. Why wouldn't he be facing Jack next to Halloran uh, because he's part of the conversation? Like, that just seems really weird to me. Then um, when Halloran asks, you know, can you arrange to get Jack's luggage or can you get their luggage from the car? He's like, fine. Like, he's annoyed that he has to do it. And then he scuffles off and then rejoins the group later. And I'm like, why is he so angry or upset about that? That's, you know, I mean, you could say, hey, I need a bellhop, go have the bellhop do it, whatever it is. I don't know that whole, like, I think that there's some kind of thing that maybe has been missed in the conspiracy theories, because I've never heard anything about Barry Denon's character, and why he does the things he does, where his positioning is, because they even go so far as to where a clock is positioned, where a nameplate on Halloran's desk is positioned. There's so many different things that they've looked at and come up with, you know, plausible arguments, whether they're real or not, you know, is really up to you. But I'm like, there's got to be something with Barry Denon's character. And I've never, never heard anything about it. So if you guys have heard any theories about it, um, shoot me a note. Let me know. Send it to Scott at scotthaskin.com and let me know what is the, the reason behind all the oddities of Barry Denon's character. Um, I don't know if they even mentioned his name. They might have when they introduced him to Jack. I, I can't remember what it was, but it's it's all in the beginning of the movie, up just up until the point that the Torrances go on their tour. And I think that's the last time we see him. So he's only in the very beginning. Um, he never busted out into song, which is kind of a shame because he's a pretty amazing singer. But yeah, I don't know. It, uh, what do you guys think? I'd be curious. But this is not a podcast about Barry Denon being weird in The Shining. This is a podcast about Wendy Carlos's score for The Shining. And there was one trailer. And I tried to find this the other day to send it to somebody and I, and I could not find it. I've seen it on YouTube, but I could not find this particular version of the trailer. Um. I'm just going to say there's going to be some spoiler alerts for people that haven't seen the movie. If you haven't seen the movie, I swear to God, it's worth it. Stop listening, go watch the movie, and then come back and listen to the rest of this. But towards the end of the film, when um, was it uh, Grady comes to uh, save them, and he makes it inside the Overlook, and he's looking around, and Jack comes from out of nowhere with the axe and takes out Grady, um, like worst savior attempt ever, seriously, like five seconds and he's gone. Um, in fact, they did a great parody on the Simpsons where Willie was the one that came back <laughs> and, and he gets killed by Homer and he's like, ah, I'm bad at this. 
a great, great parody of The Shining that they did on one of their Halloween episodes. But anyway, so in the trailer, uh, you know, in, in, in the movie, there's that scene where Jack kind of rises up from the bottom of the frame and you just like you can tell his mind is gone at this point. He's killed Holler and he's got the bloody axe like it's it's on at this point. But in one of the trailers, when he comes up like that, his mouth was bloody. And there was such an element to that of, is there cannibalism in this movie? Why is his mouth bloody? There's no reason for it. He hit Hollerin in the chest from a distance because he's got his arms fully extended with the axe. It didn't look like blood spatter. It looked like it looked like his mouth was dipped in blood. And that, I don't believe they did not leave that in the movie. Um, I mean, I know they did like 60 takes of everything, but there there couldn't have been, as far as I can imagine, a better reason to leave the, the version without the blood on his mouth in the movie instead of the blood with his mouth, except for the idea of he didn't want to lead people down that cannibalism platform. Like maybe that was showed in the trailer and he saw people were questioning whether there was cannibalism. He said, okay, I don't want to put that in the movie. Apart from that, that scene was a hundred times creepier with him coming up into frame really slow with blood all over him than it was without. So that's, you know, one complaint I have about the movie. There were other things that just didn't make sense. Um, like the bear getting a blow job in one of the rooms. Like, I don't know what's going on with this. I think that kind of tended to go back towards maybe something in the novel, but it was just like in the movie itself. It was kind of like a random thing. I didn't read the novel when I saw the movie, because I was pretty young, like I was not old enough to probably see that movie, let alone read the book. So it wasn't until some years later that I read it. And I, there might have been more about that kind of stuff. I think there was more about the ghosts in the book or yeah, in the book that would have explained some of the things that we saw in the movie. But I honestly don't remember. It's been a long time. Um, I know there was a lot about the furnace in the book, and I don't think we saw Jack in the movie go down there once. And of course, very famously, Stephen King was very disappointed with this movie. He hated it. Um, disappointed is a very sadly light word. He absolutely hated it. And I, I could understand why, because he was expecting his book was adapted to the movie, and it wasn't. It was very loosely based on the book. Um, you know, even just going out to the hedge maze, the hedge maze was was carved into animals, and, and in the movie, it wasn't. You know, that was part of it was that the hedge maze came alive and the animals moved around on their own. And here you've just got a solitary rectangular 90 degree angle hedge maze Um, still played a great important role in the movie, but just not what was in the book. So I could understand King hating it. I kind of wish he could separate himself from the novel and just watch it as a standalone movie that was inspired by his book, because I think that's what it really was. But let's let's add to some creepiness here and get into it. And also, if you haven't seen Dr. Sleep, uh, you know, I was so engrossed in that film, I didn't really pay much attention to the soundtrack at all. I'm going to have to watch it again, I think. Um, but I remember the film being an, an amazing follow up. Uh, Ewan McGregor did a great job playing adult uh, Danny. Um, just fantastically done, I have to say. A um, couple things I didn't like, but you know, that's, that's going to happen, but definitely well worth a watch. If you're a fan of the shining, got to see Dr. Sleep. I, I just think it's, mu- it's a must. Um, but our opening to this now, of course, uh, if you remember in the movie, they're flying over different, you know, like a lake and some mountains and stuff. It's giving you the image of Colorado. I don't know if all of that was actually filmed in Colorado or not. Colorado certainly has lakes that, that they could have used for that. I don't know if that particular lake was or that particular mountain range because there's mountain ranges all over. 
Um, it, it may or may not have been, but in any case, it's done so beautifully. You know, the, the helicopter shots are amazing over the water, over the roads, the mountains, everything is just fantastic. And it just plays to the most amazing, amazing music. So this melody was not written by Wendy Carlos. Um, As far as I know, it's the only part of the score that was not. This was originally written in 1830 by Hector Beloy in a piece called Dream of Witches' Witches Sabbath, which is the fifth movement of his Symphony Fantastique. And I can't imagine what this sounds like. uh, Performed in 1830 in some, you know, creepy candlelit concert hall on whatever instrument it would have been performed on. I'm sure it sounded very, very dark, um, but it's it's a beautiful piece, but it, it, it's, it's just really intense and dark. So that melody that you're hearing, it comes from that. That was redone uh, just eight years later in 1838, published in 1849 uh, by Liszt in a piece called Totance, and it's the Totance paraphrase uh, referenced in some of the parts on the, uh, on the score. Now, to talk about the score a little bit, there are only certain pieces from the film that were available in the score. There's 11 pieces from the film, and then there's the theatrical trailer music that they included on the soundtrack. Now, the good news about that is that there are two other albums that are available, and um, I think the last I saw, they were only available on CD, but they are... uh, ones that have a great deal of music from The Shining, but also some from The Clockwork Orange, mostly The Shining, though. And they are Rediscovering Lost Scores, Volumes 1 and 2. Uh, Check those out. They have a lot of music that was from the movie and a lot of bonus music that didn't make it into the movie. So those are very much uh, worth listening to if you love the score as much as I do. Uh, Check them out. Lots of good stuff there. Uh, Our second song is called Rocky Mountains.
I love those oscillators. They really bring out so much depth. And of course, just these creepy brass and synthesizer sounds. Uh, if I remember right, now the, the first track that we heard that played over, like when they were going over the water and the road and stuff, and you could see the tiny little dot of Jack's car driving up to the overlook for the interview. And I believe this is the piece that came in when they started to get uh, to fly around the overlook when they were in the mountains, actually. Um, really, really dark stuff. Very, very cool. Um, it just adds that intensity. And in the first piece, we didn't get to it, but there's some like really creepy uh, voices and and like insect sounds and stuff. It's really amazing. And then it goes into this, which just comes right in, just making you feel completely uncomfortable. I don't want to be what where wherever anything is that would be creating the sound. That's just the the emotion that you get from it. And that's what you're supposed to feel. You don't want to be anywhere near the overlook because the overlook is an evil place to be. So it's done very, very brilliantly, I have to say. Um, really dark stuff. And then, of course, after that, it just kind of dies. Like there's just, you know, no music because they're going into the interview with um, with Jack Torrance and Halloran. And then I think they go to the apartment in Colorado where where Danny and Wendy are and the stuff with him passing out and having them call the doctor. And that's like so dry because after this powerful music, there's just nothing. So it kind of almost like you have some of the notes of this music hanging in the back of your head somewhere. So I kind of like that there's no music. It, there wasn't a lot of underscore in this movie, except where there really needed to be. It wasn't like they were like, okay, we want wall-to-wall sound. We want something covering every part. Uh, none of that. The music is very, very specifically placed in this movie. But yeah, just a, an amazing, beautiful, and dark piece. Our next piece is called Latano. This is tension music at its finest, right? Uh, just even that one long hanging note at the beginning is enough to make you feel awkward because it hangs way too long. And it's kind of like when, like when you're in a conversation with somebody and you just kind of want to get away from them and you can't find a, a, a nice place to break in and be polite and excuse yourself from the conversation because there's just that one sound that keeps going and you can't break in because there's no room. Uh, very awkward, very uncomfortable. Um, I really like this and I'm trying to remember I had I had watched part of the film earlier today and I, I'm trying to remember if this was when Jack was looking at the hedge maze model and they were he saw them walking in it when they were they were actually in the hedge maze at the same time but in his mind he saw them walking inside the model uh, I think it was because I remember there being a long hanging note but that could be a different piece I guess we'll find out when we get to it but uh, very dark very uh, uncomfortable and that's exactly what this soundtrack is. Absolutely uncomfortable. Uh, so our next piece on the on the lack of comfortable train is called Music for Strings. 
I love that little piano part at the beginning. It reminds me of in uh, Ghostbusters when Venkman goes to Dana Barrett's apartment and he opens up the piano cover over the keys and just hits those high keys a few times and says, they hate this. Uh, I like that. But this this is really some patient playing to draw it in really fast and then to just slow it down the way they did over that long period of time. Uh, that is some really patient playing because it's very well and evenly played. I, I really respect that performance. Um, love the strings in here. Um, I I really find it fascinating too the way that they're using the timpani because typically with timpani you just hear it hit or or rolls on a timpani in different pitches. But here they're actually using the foot pedal to control the tension on the head and really give it a, a mysterious and creepy feel to the song as if what they were doing with the strings wasn't creepy enough because it certainly was um, really cool. And, th- and that's another theme that they do from throughout the movie is, is with the foot pedal on the timpani. And it just kind of that on a drum. Very weird. Like normally you would get that maybe on a stringed instrument where you can slide the note um, but it's, you know, it, it's done on timpani. It's very, very cool. Uh, another creepy part of this film and one that seriously adds to just just the depth of how dark this film actually is. And uh, I certainly love it. And that leads us to uh, getting to songs that I don't know if I'm going to pronounce right. So it looks like Utrenia Iwangila. I'm going to guess that's possibly Italian and my knowledge of Italian language is like zero. So uh, way out of my league here, but let's just find out how it sounds because who cares what it's called? It's all about the music. Does it get any better than this on a horror soundtrack? Really? I mean, you've got the, uh, it, it sounds like a, a ceremony of some sort. It sounds like they're all kind of chanting something together in this really weird whisper, but also some element of voice in there as well. It's a really interesting combination. You've got some crazy percussion going on. I always thought there was a jingle bell in there. Uh, I, and I'm not hearing it now. Um, I thought there was, maybe there is, maybe there's a different, uh, reprise or something to this. Um, but the intensity of it, I don't know what they're saying. I've never seen any, uh, a chart or anything for what the words are during this chant, but man, is it intense and creepy. And then you've just got that one percussive hit when they stop. That's like, okay, you've all done it. I'm putting the, the period on this chant. Um, really cool. And of course there's much more of the piece to go yet. But man, that is some just intense, dark 
horror score type stuff. And this is really honestly like where you get to understand how the music really affects the film. Because if they would have just played like a single oboe over this part or, you know, like um, a couple of very, you know, low brass instruments and a couple of low woodwinds. Um, yeah, it could have sounded dark, but I mean, there is just such an intensity with this chanting type feel. It's so amazing. And I, and I remember uh, one of the scenes where this kind of stuff is played is like when Wendy's trying to um, get out of the hotel. She's got the knife. Jack's already broken into the bathroom. She's going through. She's seeing different things in rooms like that bear getting a blowjob and stuff like that. So uh, really intense stuff. I absolutely love this music. I could probably listen to it. Uh, for quite a while, you know, at least a good hour or so, which probably explains why I'm single. And there you go. So now our our next piece is uh, also called the same. Well, it's called the uh, Utrenia Canon Poxy or yeah, P-A-S-C-H-Y. So I don't know if that's like pocket belly or what. I have no idea. But let's just take a listen, because once again, that's all that really matters. Well, that's actually the whole piece. Um, I think that comes in when Danny is running through the hedge maze trying to trick Jack. Uh, bits of that sound familiar. So I don't know where we would be outside the hotel. So I don't know where the chanting would be coming from. I'm not sure how that ties into what was going on visually, unless they're just like, hey, this is a theme that we're using for Danny when he takes action or when there's, you know, kind of running chaos or they're searching for something like I'm not sure exactly how that played in theme wise, but just listening to it, man, that just takes creepiness to a whole nother level. And again, I could I could just spend a great deal of time just listening to that and dissecting it and enjoying it for what it is as a standalone piece. It's it's absolutely killer. And you'd have to have something pretty intense to kind of take Danny's rationale in the middle of this panic. And just trying to get free and not get caught by Jack. And also Jack kind of wandering around determined to get Danny, but his insanity is just really sinking in at this point. Like there's so many things and, and um, you'd have to have some kind of chaos in a point like this to, to make the film work. If you tried to do something contradictory and put in like a nice light fuzzy piece or a heart playing or something, uh, I, I, I think there's certain things you can contrast. I don't think that this scene would have been one of them. This is very powerful. That's at the height of the movie. It's like, this is happening, you know, in, in this world here that we're observers of. Um, really cool stuff. So uh, our next piece is one that I'm happy I can, uh, I, I can pronounce, but I don't know what exactly it means because it's called 
Awakening of Jacob. I don't remember there being a Jacob in the film. I'm pretty sure at least one spot this music appears is when Jack goes to check out uh, room 237 after Danny comes in almost catatonic with the, you know, the marks on his neck or whatever. And then he he goes in and there's that beautiful woman that, and then where it turns out that beauty isn't even skin deep in her case. Um, really cool, intense scene because they put the heartbeat in there. They've got the, um, just the slow motion draw of her getting out of the tub and her walking towards them. I mean, they really draw that out. And of course, they're intercutting scenes with Danny and um, just just amazingly well done. But this music adds such a level of intensity. It's it's not even funny. And it's so patient, right? Like normally as a musician, you want to play, you want to do stuff. But this stuff is just no, no. And and so so well timed, uh, just just another great piece of music. So I'm thinking Jacob might be the demon that's haunting the hotel, or the ghost, or whoever kind of started this whole thing. Who was the one that appeared in the bathtub? Um, so that might be just part of the backstory, or maybe that part was just cut out of the movie where they explained what was happening, because you really you kind of get the sense that it's Delbert Grady, but what made Delbert Grady? go nuts. Was it really cabin fever? And now the hotel is haunted because of him and his family. Is it something before him that drove him to do it? Like what's drawing, driving Jack to do it. But then Jack was a a caretaker of the overlook back in the twenties, according to the final photo that we see. So is it Jack? I mean, it's just one of those things that kind of leaves your head spinning because other than the, uh, other than the the Delbert Grady storyline, Oh, and I think I said Grady earlier when I was talking about Scatman Crothers coming back to save them. Um, but when you're talking, the, the Delbert Grady storyline is really the only clue we get into anything happening at the hotel. So you kind of are led to believe that it has something to do with that. And of course, Delbert Grady appears and all that. But I don't know. It seems like there was something more going on. And the fact that that Jack was the caretaker from the 20s, um, there has to be more than it just being Grady because that had just happened just a few years earlier from the time that Jack did his interview and got the job. So I don't know. Again, it's, it's just one of those things that you have to decide for yourself what you want the story to be. Uh, either way, to me, it's a great ghost story with a lot of great visual images and a lot of intensity and a really killer musical score. So uh, we still got a few more to go here. That leaves us to track eight, which is De, De Natura... Sonaris, part one.
And we're back to those themes of those long hanging notes, but now we're getting more notes added to it. It's just very disconnected. Um, if I walked into a room and there were four musicians playing that, I would probably think that they were tuning up uh, because it definitely is, is not in any enjoyable harmony whatsoever. And again, it's designed that way. It's designed to put you on edge, to make you feel uncomfortable. I don't know for sure where this was in the movie, but I want to say this was when Danny was like hiding in those little random uh, cupboards and things that they had throughout the hotel, uh, trying to avoid Jack before they went outside. Um, I could be wrong, but I, I'm thinking that's where it was in the film. But either way, uh, great intensity. Again, very patient, very, very patient music. And for a horror film like this, I think that works so beautifully because you could just go totally full on intense and probably have a great score. But I love that they just leave long notes hanging, that they just put these little shock sounds in there here and there as, as accents. And you can't predict them because they're not really, they don't seem like they're on the beat. They just seem like they happen when they happen. So they might be matching visual cues in the film, which were not done to a click track uh, or anything. So uh, I don't know, but the end result is just, it's just killer. So that leads us to the second part of this track, this De Natura Sonaris Part 2. I'm honestly not sure what point in the film this occurs. It's pretty subtle. Um, there's some nice play with symbols. You've got like a you know, sticker or object being dragged across the symbols. There's a little bit of theremin in there. Um, some just subtle stuff, but it's, it's nice and creepy without being too upfront, too in your face. I, I almost wonder if it's when Jack was pausing in the hedge maze trying to figure out which way to go. Or somewhere like that. I have to check the movie again because I'm I'm curious. That's such a subtle yet powerful piece at the same time. And it just goes to show like all you need to do is enhance the tension. As a composer for film, you don't need to drive it as you would uh, most of the time in, you know, let's say that you're just doing like a, a dark album or something like that where you kind of need the music to push it because the music is everything. In film, you're really just enhancing the visuals. You don't need to dominate them unless there's certain places, like with that percussion that we heard earlier. Uh, that was definitely meant to be shocking and really put you on edge and, and give you that immediate sense of purpose. Here, this is just awkward, uncomfortable, I don't want to be here, um, tension, what's going to happen next, is, is he going to get away kind of feel. And uh, I, I, that's what I love about film music is how much you can do with so little sometimes. So that brings us to our next piece as we're getting closer to the edge. This is 
polymorphia. This is really dark stuff, you know, very low end strings, uh, cellos, maybe double bass. I'm, I'm not sure. But in any case, uh, very dark, very low and uh, almost mournful. And I don't know what's going on here because I don't remember the final music to the film before the end credit music kicked in. But yeah, it's cool. It's definitely cool. Um just kind of that sense of foreboding again. It's it's hard to say without knowing what the exact visual was, but if these are going in order and we were just in the hedge maze, this would have to be like them getting away. I don't think it's that last look at Jack because I think there was like one of those shock cues and, um, you know, like it cut from night to day where he was frozen and just like that shock cue right on that that frame where it, where it turned to day. Um, and then that was kind of just short lived. And then it went to the hotel musics or the, you know, the, the uh, ballroom music. So I'm not really sure. But in any case, it's cool. You know, I like it. I, I like the way it just carries that tone, the way it just, again, hangs on those notes and really just gives you that foreboding sense. It's really cool. It's excellent film score music. Um, you know, and, and as I've said many times, like film score music on its own does not always stand up as individual pieces or as a, like a collective soundtrack. And that's okay because it's not designed to most of the time. Now that's where you'll get like, okay, we're going to put together all the hits that were in this movie. And here's your Aerosmith song. Here's your Bananarama song, whatever it's going to be. And those, that's going to be your popular song that uh, songs that were all licensed soundtrack. But then there's the score soundtrack. And that is all the, like the undertones and, and the themes and all of that stuff. And this is obviously very much not a piece that you would ever probably listen to in standalone unless you were, you know, just like going through the entire film uh, score or whatever. I, I can't imagine ever saying, God, I really want to hear Polymorphia. Like, I can't get through the day without hearing Polymorphia. Probably not going to happen, right? Because it's not a standalone piece. But man, when you hear it within the context of the score, absolutely amazing and and powerful. So that leads us to our last actual film track on this soundtrack. This is Midnight, The Stars, and You. Y-O-U, not E-W-E.
So I'd always been curious and really didn't ever look it up until just now. But I was wondering if this was a song that was recorded for the film and just given incredible vintage sound, because it definitely sounds like, you know, an early, you know, first few decades of the century kind of recording. It's really muddy. It's got that brass in it that you just don't hear people writing a lot of that style these days. It's a beautiful piece of music, absolutely wonderfully done. But I wondered if it was something that was written for the film just to be designed to be from that era, because film composers get called on to do that all the time, or if this was something that was actually licensed for the film. Um, I can say that this was a song that was released in August of 1934, so definitely not something that was written for The Shining. And it was a single by Ray Noble's Mayfair Dance Orchestra with vocals by A. Bowley. Uh, very, very wonderful piece of music, I have to say. I love the the brass in it. I know that they're using those those mutes and they're uh, you know kind of uh, moving them back and forth to get that sound. Um, but it just it just has such a vintage feel to it. It's really not overproduced. It's got muddy tones. I love that they didn't try to clean it up. That that because it, it, it really fits the film more sounding like a vintage piece of music, right? They uh, what is it? Nineteen thirty one is that? I think what the um what the picture on The Shining was, uh, 1921 or 1931. So that would have been around this time frame. And, um, you know, really wanting to kind of, as they're honing in on that picture, really bring you back to that time. And that kind of, in a way, explains the way that people were dressed when they were seeing the ghosts, again, except for the the, the people in the, like the bear costumes and stuff. But, you know, all the, the vintage people, and then they turned into skeletons, uh, really kind of gives you a, an idea of what era all this came from or or why, where they're throwing it back to. So again, it's very confusing. If it, if it were Delbert Grady, who was haunting the house and calling this, and that happened in the 70s, then why would they be going all the way back to the 20s or 30s to bring the ghosts? So there had to have been another thing that I just don't think ever got explained within the context of the movie. I'm pretty sure there was something in the book, whether I think it was a fire maybe, and the overlook burned down. I don't remember. It's been so, it's been decades since I've read the book, but I do remember enjoying it. Um, I, w- I don't know if I would have been happier reading the book before I saw the movie. I saw the movie at such a young age that it was so impressionable that I don't think the book could have done a better job because of that. I would be curious to know what I would have thought of the book had I not seen the movie or not known about the the Kubrick version of it. And just read it as I read any other Stephen King book, if I would have liked it as much, because it was hard to to read the book and not picture Jack Nicholson and Shelley Duvall and Danny Lloyd and Scatman Carruthers and um, Barry Denon just standing in awkward places around Jack Torrance for whatever reason. But yeah, I mean, I'll never know, but it's it's one of those things I, I really would like to, because I think I did enjoy the book on its own. But of course, I think too, by the time that I read the book, I might have already seen I don't think I had seen Stephen King's remake of The Shining, the one with Rebecca de Mornay and um, Stephen Weber, which I did not like that much. Huge fan of Rebecca de Mornay. I think she's a great actress. Um, huge crush on her for sure. But and and she's she's one of those people that plays like always plays somebody really elegant. And so every movie I've seen her in, she's always like in control or really elegant and. You know, she's really the one that's kind of manipulating people, except for like um, what was like the babysitter, I think, and Risky Business. But she was like super young when she did Risky Business. And there was another one where she was a musician. I think she was a guitar player, a singer or something. Um, I can't remember what it was called. But in any case, 
uh, you know, once you get into more her like adult age films, not adult films, but adult age films, or maybe like late teens, early 20s, somewhere in there, where she started playing more serious characters, she always had money or was dating somebody that had money. She was always in like nice social circles, wearing nice clothes, that sort of thing. Um, even when she was a lawyer, she was like, you know, kind of like a, a, like an A-lister type lawyer, I would say. Um, but but so it was kind of weird to see her in like a casual role as The Shining, which is, you know, somewhat an action film to some extent and somewhat, you know, a drama, somewhat a horror. I, I thought that the the graphics didn't really bring out the nature, I think, of, of things as much as he had wanted to. Kind of like The Langoliers. I think that The Langoliers was a, a good movie. I, I really liked what they did with it. Um, but again, like the graphics just didn't really do it for me. So I think I, I didn't enjoy it as much as I could have, but I thought the acting was good. Um, with Steven Weber, I, I thought he was an interesting choice because he's known more for comedy. I mean, he'd been on Wings for so long. I don't know what else he had done. I think he did a movie with Laura Linney, I want to say, but I think that was after. Um, but in any case, like I, I, I didn't really see him at, at, like as serious as I think I would have liked that role to have been played. So I, I think that might have been why I didn't enjoy it. But honestly, see it for yourself. I mean, there's a lot of things about it that are pretty cool. Um, the kid that played Danny was very different. So again, it's like you've got this stuck in your head. So why remake it? Because this movie was so well known as a classic and that's what people are going to know. So I don't really know if it's worth the expense of remaking it and trying to get Jack Nicholson out of your head when you're when you're trying to sell me Steven Weber, because Jack Nicholson is going to be in my head. So, I mean, you could have picked a different movie. You could have picked The Long Walk and done that as a movie. So I always I always wonder, you know, when they do those kind of things. Of course, I think with King, it was a matter of he hated The Shining so much that he probably wanted to just see it redone the way that he envisioned it. And, um, you know, I, I hope he was much happier with that. I, I don't know. I've never read anything about his position on it. But uh, great film, great soundtrack. Going to give you one more piece that they uh, they were kind enough to include on this soundtrack. And again, guys, go check out those other uh, those other album versions of Rediscovering Lost Scores, Volume 1, Volume 2, uh, Music from the Shining, and some tracks from the Clockwork Orange, which were also very, very good tracks. Here is some of the theatrical trailer music by Wendy Carlos for The Shining. So kind of on par, but some completely different flavors for the trailer, of course. And, you know, like when you might get a part of a piece of music kind of stuck in your head and you're kind of waiting for it when you go see the movie. But once the score starts playing, you typically forget about whatever the music was that you had in your head from from the trailer or, you know, unless you're really familiar with it, you know. 
Um, so you just kind of, you know, it just kind of fizzles out of your head and you don't have to worry about it too much. But it's uh, it's kind of cool. Like I could see that working for the trailer because I, I remember um, there was the the different versions of the scene of Jack coming into frame after he killed. Um, oh, what was his name? It's Getman Crothers character. Uh, ha- um, wait a minute. Now nah, it's not coming to me, but in any case, uh, him. And uh, and then there was always, you know, the the scene with the blood coming off of the elevator and there was one that was like just very little music and it was mostly a heartbeat, which was probably the creepiest trailer. In fact, that might've been the one where Jack came up with the blood on his mouth. I'm not sure. Um, I hope I can find it and put it in the show notes, but if not, I know it was at least on YouTube at one point. I don't know, maybe it got taken down, um, but it was super cool. Super cool. Um, really still makes me so disappointed that they didn't use that clip in the movie. But again, if it was like, I don't want people to think this is a movie about cannibals, then I get it. Um, but yeah, that's The Shining, guys. Really, really super cool. Um, amazing soundtrack, amazing acting in the original, in the Kubrick version that came out in 1980. I do find it interesting in the States it came out, I think it was in May of 1980. And that's like, this should have been a winter film. You know, like you should have felt like you were isolated in the theater, like they were in the Overlook. And maybe even blast the air a little bit to really make you feel like you're, you know, you're stuck, you're isolated like they are. Um, I can't imagine like in May, it's like you're imagining it being cold and then you go outside and the sun's beating down on you and you're like, oh, well, that's over, I guess. I don't know. It just it just seems like the the winter time would have been a much better time to release it. But then again, when you've got all that money sunk into it, if you can release it in May, you're not going to want to wait half a year and release it in November. You know, that money's just sitting there waiting to be recouped. And, you know, plus the the marketing and all that. So it, it wouldn't really work to do that. But um, in any case, uh, I never saw it in the theater, which is a shame. Um, it did make an appearance in the movie Twister when they go uh, to the drive-in. Uh, that's they, they had escaped the tornadoes and they were at a drive-in and uh, The Shining was playing on the screen. You can see that playing when the screen gets ripped apart. So that's kind of cool. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just a, an absolutely amazing horror film. To me, one of the best. But again, keep in mind, I saw it when I was really young. And maybe that explains a lot about how I am the way I am now. I don't know. But in any case, great film. Check it out. Uh, Enjoy the soundtrack. And thanks for for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of the Haskincast podcast. Cheers.